I am Conor McLeod of the Clan McLeod, and I am immortal. We have a dead guy named Nash. You talk funny, Nash. Where are you from? Lots of different places. I am Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramius, chief metallurgist to King Charles V of Spain. Everybody's got their problems. You're alive. Why didn't you die? Hey, it's a kind of magic. Hi, I'm Candy. Of course you are. Hello and welcome to Another Time McLeod, the only podcast to our knowledge to go through that wonderful 1986 movie Highlander, scene by glorious scene. I'm your host, Rob Daniel, and as always, I'm joined by McKinsman, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Excellent. And... So regular listeners would have heard him on the previous episode, but I'm very happy to say that our guest, Scott Varnum, is returning for another chat about Highlander. Hi, thanks for having me back. Thank you for coming back. Um, So, Scott, before we get into the scene that we're going to be talking about today, you have started a Highlander-themed Twitter account. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, Yes, so I I basically, I saw... um, things like Simpsons production archive and stuff like that. And I thought me too. Um, (laughs) I I just decided I I like the sort of archival stuff, like the sort of the cool sheets, um, concept art, stuff like that. So I thought other people might as well. Um, So I basically started a Twitter account that sort of brings pictures of um, various bits and pieces from the original Highlander film. Fantastic. And if anyone wanted to check that out on Twitter, where could they find that? Uh, So Highlander stuff or one word. Um, and then it's the Highlander Archive is the username. Brilliant. Yeah, so it hasn't been running, I don't think, for very long, but uh, already it's a real resource. I, I'm really enjoying looking at it. Did you guys see the um, Russell Mulcahy uh, self-portrait thing? Yes, the slightly tortured-looking... It was nightmarish, <laughs> my God. <laughs> Sorry, we're actually on that page now. I'm just going to see if I can find it. Um... I think you'll know it when you see it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. Yep, strongly recommend that our listeners go and check out um, Highlander Archive, Highlander Stuff, and give it a follow. It's a really, really good account. And yeah, you do want to look at the self... I don't know, could you even call it self-portrait? The weird bit of therapy that Russell Mulcahy did when he drew a picture of himself. (laughs) (laughs) It is quite something. Cool, okay then. So today we will be looking at the scene from 1 hour, 17 minutes, 49 seconds, to 1 hour and 19 minutes... 33 seconds so it's quite a lengthy period that we'll be looking at today but there's lots of stuff happening in it um this is when we are introduced to the character of kirk machunas who is a uh, ex-vietnam vet he's clearly dealing with some issues uh, and he is cruising around some of the seedier areas of new york and comes across something that is a bit weird a sword fight happening in a back alley and decides to investigate which is not the best idea. Um, so there's actually quite a lot going on in this scene. But uh, so, Scott, what were your takeouts from this scene to begin with? Well, I mean, first of all, my main thing with it is that the combat's a bit rubbish. <laughs> At least I thought so anyway. It is quick, isn't it? It's quick. And I don't I don't know that um, Hugh Corshi's done much fencing before or if they have, let's be generous, if they had time to choreograph something. Yeah, they they were shooting in Shad Thames in the middle of the night. Yeah. Shad Thames, you know, prior to redevelopment, you know, another location that's really very close to me. Um, 
just quickly on the sword fighting, I actually quite liked that because you get the sense that they've been going at it a while and that they're both exhausted because it's all, you know, being shot with like, you know, in tilt mm. and they're just they're kind of hacking at each other. They're, yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of finesse. It doesn't feel hugely choreographed. But yeah, you get the sense that that they're they're basically just wearing each other down. And until um, Kurgan does that sweep, it basically reverses. You know, you know, they're, they're clashing blades. Instead, Kurgan swings around and takes um, Castigar's head off. Well, he set, he sets up in a pattern, doesn't he? So he he swings down, 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 and then sort of surprises him and gets his head. Yeah, it's it's a good finishing move. Hmm. Um, and Rob, there's a good bit of production design, I suppose you call it, or um, makeup design, in that Castigear is slick with sweat in this scene, which, yeah, suggests that they have been going at it for a while. Um, and, yeah, I don't think it was until I saw this, um, until I watched it for this episode, that I realised that is that is a quick scene. Um, and, yeah, I know what you mean in terms of the, the hacking's good. I mean, they are just trying to hack at each other hmm. now and, um, and just get it over with. But it was one of those, I think as a kid, I just remember it being a, a longer, more spectacular sword fight. And every time I watch it now, it's like, oh yeah, it's, it is actually really, really brief this. Um, and it's not, I mean, I think initially you could even be forgiven for not knowing that it's Castigar. And he's, and even though we set him up in a couple of scenes earlier with a really, really nice scene on the bridge, this is the exit for him. And it's just a bit of a kind of like a cursory exit in terms of the amount of screen time he's given. And because he gets killed really, really quickly. <laughs> Yeah, so he's still wearing the um, and I, he actually talks a bit about it in the book, um, a kind of magic when interviewed. Hugh Quash, yeah, he's wearing that. that kind of, it's Ghanaian, I think. It's like a Ghanaian yes dress, uh, and I think he, I think it's his. I think he basically, you know, it's his own costume. So I think mm. he wore to the audition, didn't he? He he wore something like that. Yes, audition, and and Ross McKay clearly just thought, well, he's given a bit of thought to the character. It's a nice touch. It makes him visually distinctive. Yeah, but um, Scott, what do you think of the? newly introduced character of, of Kirk. Um, I, I like him. He's a, It's a bit weird that he survives uh, this encounter. Um, <laughs> you, you, I assume you guys know he's Rogue 2 in Empire Strikes Back. Yes, he is. But for, um, but for any listeners who might not know who that is, can you tell them who that is? Yeah, so he um, he's the one who sort of goes and finds Han Solo and Luke in the snow at the beginning of Empire. Says that he's Rogue 2 for about five minutes. Commander Skywalker, do you copy? This is Rogue Two. This is Rogue Two. Captain Solo, do you copy? Commander Skywalker, do you copy? This is Rogue Two. Good morning. Nice of you guys to drop by. Echo Base. This is Rogue Two. I found them. Repeat. I found. Them. Um. <laughs> because he's a was a British actor, Christopher Malcolm, uh, Scottish. He was born in Aberdeen. That's right. Yeah. Um, and he's he's a American accent. This is pretty good. He's also in Labyrinth. And by what I can see on his IMDb profile, quite a lot of absolutely fabulous. Yes, he definitely was in that. He actually moved to Canada, or his family moved to Canada when he was very young. So I think that's why. <laughs> the American accent is actually quite strong. I mean, obviously, there is a difference between the accents, but um, but I was surprised when I found out that he was born in Scotland, and then it made a bit more sense when I discovered that he moved to Canada, because, yeah, his accent in this is very good. Um, what the hell? Okay, Marie, this is for real. 
I mean, yeah, he he doesn't have a lot of a lot of dialogue. Um but he's got he's got a great character intro because again we go from the end of the previous scene with I hope you get your head cut off asshole to just a close up on a on a pile of guns on the on his passenger seat you know he's got an Uzi which was and is definitely an illegal weapon <laughs> and um, yeah he's driving his Pontiac Trans Am Firebird with the eagle on front um, through the streets of New York listening to Hammer to Fall. Which again, you're like, you know, for an incidental character, it's a strong introduction. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 really it's really quite effective. I do, I did wonder why they were, well, they hadn't come up with any new music for him. You know, like they they came up with a one year of love, uh, Princess Universe stuff like that. But it might have just been whether they wanted to sell more singles or yeah, because everything else Queen had did for this film was for this film. Yeah, was it that they each wrote a song? And something like that, yeah. Because they were supposed to just do one song, and they then they quite liked the film or like the idea of the film, what they were seeing in terms of of the footage that was cut together. So they decided to do a song each, um, and probably thought, yeah, we'll just give him Hammer to Fall because actually that's just <laughs> one of our best songs, and we also want to sell our greatest hits album as well. Do you know what? If they had included some behind the scenes on Highlander in the film Bohemian Rhapsody, my opinion of that film would be far higher. Yeah, much higher. <laughs> so much higher um but the yeah so he's he's driving around new york but then it's intercut with shad thames isn't it and i think the continuity in this is a bit weird sometimes there's a scene when he seems to be turning to screen right but then the car turns into screen left and things like that but um hmm. but the intercutting between london and new york is actually pretty good and I said on on the previous episode, there was something about um, the fact that this was filmed in London being quite a surprise. And when I watched this as a kid during the 80s, it was like, this particular scene just seemed like a very, very American scene. Um, The way that it was shot, all the action in it. um, British films at the time, it wasn't a great time for British film and actually having the money to get them made. And there weren't a lot of British action films and it always seemed a bit more suited to telly rather than to the big screen so to find out that this scene was london was uh yeah it was quite a surprise and just shows that if you light it properly and add some steam in there and clancy brown and some neon and some prostitutes yes indeed and the set dressing is actually pretty good in terms of it's not overly dressed or like you know the location dressing is it's not overly dressed Mm. to convince you that it's new york which i think is a good way to sell it. And that's the thing, you know, the, the, the bits with the prostitutes and the neon, I'm not entirely sure if those are New York or if those are Shad Thames, because it's. I don't actually, I can't quite pinpoint the actual moment where they cut from New York to Shad Thames, because I'm assuming that pretty much the alleyway is Shad Thames and everything else is New York. But in which case, obviously, he's got the part where he drives past where um, Kirk, whose name we don't know yet, uh, drives past the sword fight and then you've got the what the hell and the reverse. And it's almost, I'm assuming the shot of him going past the sword fight, that's Shad Thames, obviously, because you're seeing the alleyway in Shad Thames. But then potentially the part where where it cuts to a, a front shot of the car and he's reversing and you're seeing back down the alleyway, that's potentially New York. So... It's it's really interesting. It just made me think of um, 
And again, this is just to get in the obligatory Simpsons reference where, you know, it's almost comical, the cutting back and forth between the two, once you can see it. It's a bit like Homer jumping back and forth at the line at the US Embassy in Australia. It's like, now I'm in one, now I'm in the other, now I'm in one, now I'm in the other. Now I'm in America, Australia. America! I get Australia, it, Dad! America! Australia! Oh, America, that's America! America! Australia! America! Oh! Here in America, we don't tolerate that kind of crap, sir! I'm well, glad you've pulled in Simpsons, because uh, that's well within my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. If you want to throw some Simpsons reference out, feel free. Well, I thought, I thought you were going to go for the Radioactive Man um, episode, where the editor shows uh, what he can do with uh, editing to make it seamless. <laughs> <laughs> so Scott, what do you think in terms of um, of the location work of this of this particular scene? Well, there was a point mentioned about the uh, continuity of the of how it sort of changes from screen yeah. uh, camera right to camera left, and I think that helps sell the transition um, because you're orienting yourself like, oh wait, where, which which direction is the car coming in now? What's it? What's it doing? And by the time you've done that, you they've done the transition. They you know, they've gone to Shad Thames. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. I don't know how deliberate that was because uh, we know that Russell Mulcahy was just the kind of guy who filmed something because it looks visually interesting. So maybe that was complete accident, but maybe that was helped in the editing room. I don't know. That certainly makes sense that it would work. Yeah, because it's one of those things. Um, Be thinking, oh, yeah, okay, right. On the audio commentary, he says there's the scene when when Kirk is kind of cruising by uh, the prostitutes on the corner, and he says that's New York. And, but I always thought that that sort of shot with those extras, you would shoot that in London. And I think that some of the extras are in the scene that we'll talk about next week when all the windows go out and they're seen running along. Um, And I became a bit obsessed with the brickwork because the bricks are different between the two cities. But um, yeah, so I'm not entirely sure when it does go to New York or if there's kind of intercutting between the two. because presumably the close-ups of him in the car when the car is clearly driving through New York, but then it cuts to a close-up of him, well, that would be shot in London mm. because I think he was based in London and you wouldn't fly him out to New York to get those shots. Um, and you can't really see the background in the close-up. So anyway, yes, but it's uh, it's all that movie magic. Has anyone actually... Because I've tried to scope out this location like in person. Has anyone else tried that? Yeah, that kind of where we walked, wasn't it, Rob? Oh yeah, we've been uh, we've uh, we walked through there a couple of months ago. Oh nice! <laughs> I, I I was only able to find like the overhead catwalk kind of area. That's that's the only bit I could locate. Yeah, I don't I don't think the actual kind of little cul-de-sac hmm. actually exists anymore because they they redeveloped the whole area. Um, but yeah, we, we we've definitely been in the immediate vicinity. Yeah, it's um yeah, it is one of those things where it's all just apartments now and shops and things and. But they also, did they completely level the place, Rob, and then just um, build it up again? Because they seem to have kept... They didn't completely level the place because they've kept, obviously, like the walkways, yeah. a lot of the original features. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is a London action scene. And in terms of his accent, it's... Uh, yes, it makes sense that he moved to Canada, so it was very close to America. When he says, what the hell... Why is it that's a very, very well-delivered line? Mm. I think that's the worst thing that possibly could have happened for... I mean, the second worst thing that possibly could have happened for Castagir is that interruption. Because, I mean, so, that's going to register on some level when you're... That everybody... That nobody acknowledges. Like, sorry, guys, we're, we're having a sword fight. Leave us alone. Yeah. You know, what two consenting adults choose to get up to in a uh, in a back alley is, is entirely their own business. <laughs>
yeah, that's a good, that's a very good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I also like that you've got the enormous shadow on the wall. I'm not quite sure what the light source for that is. <laughs> yeah, I think this is, uh, this goes to Scott's point about Russell Mulcahy, he would shoot a good shot and would then worry about how that shot was generated within world afterwards um because it's also got heavy gel work in there isn't it is it kind of like you know, red and blue or something like that it's um it's like a proper comic book shot that is um but it's really good i mean it yeah it does suggest this guy has stumbled out of the real world and into something that is kind of um supernatural I mean, does he leave the car? Well, he, I guess because the car's parked sideways. I was about to say, is it the car headlamps? But no, because the car is parked perpendicular to the alleyway. I mean, apparently it was like a, a long, cold, wet night shoot. And um, and I, I think, you know, and uh, Peter Diamond was on hand to help, you know, do the choreography. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously we're going to end this this episode before the uh, before the explosion, um, but apparently, yeah, Hugh Quashie was hanging out with um, Clancy Brown. They got on really well together because um, Hugh Quashie had recently played um, Aaron in a BBC production of Titus Andronicus, which Clancy Brown had seen, and Clancy Brown had played the same role in a different production. So they just basically sat around talking about Shakespeare. Oh, so um, because of course Clancy Brown was asked by Sean Connery earlier, "Do you golf?" and when he said no. Sean Connery never spoke to him again, <laughs> and but uh, but he clearly Shakespeare, <laughs> yeah, and, that's, and that's just really nice. I would have loved to have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation. It's it's arguably more impressive that they they crossed over like that because you know, obviously we could just go on like YouTube and sort of you know if if I was in a situation where I knew somebody had been in something, I'd probably go and watch that thing first. Um, whereas in those days, you'd probably have to catch it on a VHS or. A, a TV recording, and there's no guarantee necessarily. This is a weird coincidence they sort of lined up that way. Well, yeah, I mean, on the last episode, we talk a bit about how Hugh Quashie does the voice of a computer in an episode of Red Dwarf that I was able to go back and find. And yeah, you wouldn't know it's him unless you know it's him, unless you know, like when, when you get to the credits, it's a small, yet entirely just, you know, verbal performance. Um, but there's a nice quote, uh, again, in the book, A Kind of Magic, uh, by Jonathan Melville, where Hugh Quashie talks about, like, you know, this was one of his first films, and he was at a point where he wasn't overly selective when it came to choosing his roles, and that, you know, he just wanted the experience of being near a camera, being on set, and learning and developing. And, um, yeah, well, I mean, one thing I love about this film, and again, we've talked a lot about the supporting cast, and even the you know more incidental characters, is that, you know, the idea of these are jobbing actors, and everybody's giving like a, a really interesting performance, and that, you know, we said, you know, pretty much everybody involved in this has been in a Star Wars, because that's, you know, they might not be household names, but these are people, you know, anything shooting around London or, you know, up at Shepperton, um, at Elstree, you know, they'll have been in it, because that's... that's that was their day job and they would turn up and they would put the long cold rainy night shoot in Bermondsey and they'd you know they'd hit their marks and they'd give a memorable performance and I've got a real appreciation for actors like that and I do think the Highlander is you know among many other things a love letter to that well the, the three the three main people in this scene have all been in Star Wars by now yes yeah because uh, Castillo was in episode one and then Clancy Brown's been in the Mandalorian um and then course Kirk Martinez was in Empire Strikes Back. If you live long enough you see yourself die or become into Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> well that's a great shout out yeah that they've all been in Star Wars. That's that I think that <laughs> yeah it's so weird that Star Wars uh, to your point Rob was just everyone was in Star Wars and now everyone's going to be in Star Wars again because 
there, there's just so much Star Wars again. And Andor is a thing that we're going to get as well. And I didn't even heard about that until like a couple of days ago. But um, but yes, so Star Wars will be the um, will just be the centre of all of this now. As it kind of was back in the 80s. I mean, all these films were coming off, mm. um, yeah, the huge success of Star Wars, which is which is a fantasy film, I think, more than a sci-fi film, even though it has all the sci-fi trappings of spaceships and stuff. But, um, but Scott, to your point that you said on the previous episode about how you kind of came to Highlander through Star Wars and the swords and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It all ties in. <laughs> and you've got the, uh, yeah, and then obviously you've got Kurgan decapitates Castigir. Um you know, uh, R.I.P. Sunder Castigir, uh, Little We Knew Ye. Um, and you've got that reverb on the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, that... that, that. <sighs> noise and then Kurgan immediately gives that kind of self-satisfied hmm and then gets hit in the chest full force by the blast of an Uzi oh that's awesome I love that <laughs> and he actually gets held up by the force of the blast it's like something out of Robocop yeah that's right it's um and it's some pretty good squib work by Clancy Brown there because I know that it's that you can do it safely but you are letting off little explosions or charges on your on one of your main actors so it is it is good that you just get that good wide shot of him and all the squibs going off on his vest well yeah I am um, recently I read a book uh, about the making of The Godfather and they talk a bit about where uh, with James Kahn in it doing the toll booth sequence right and the fact they basically put more squibs on his body and in the immediate vicinity than basically ever been you know outside of Bonnie and Clyde <laughs> and, and they were like yeah you need to basically do exactly this and like you know don't like accidentally cover your chest with your hands don't you know try to keep as far away from the squibs as possible given they are given you're wearing them <laughs> and it's like yeah we've only got one take because we're essentially blowing up a car and um yeah it's, it's one of those that and i think in this scene as you're saying rob it is really effective you really do you know and clearly as we discuss in the next episode um kirk thinks he's taken this guy out <laughs> because you know clancy brown collapses in a pile of boxes and, um, and he's just been shot with an Uzi, like an entire clip has gone into him. So, um, yes. If that blast had taken him in the face, would that, you know, could that could you kill an immortal? That was going to be my question, and I was going to aim it at the guest. So I was thinking that. I was thinking, if he just shot him in the face and tied <laughs> an empty clip into his face so that he didn't really have a head anymore, what do you think, Scott? Um, oh, that is interesting. Uh, I don't know. If it took the head off, I'd be inclined to say, like, definitely. That if it left the head on, then I think you'd just be like, you know, horribly wounded, but still basically, no, I don't say functioning, that's the wrong word, but like, <laughs> still a living, breathing thing, basically. <laughs> we actually talked about this in an earlier episode with um, Jesse Bailey from uh, the Sun But Inevitable pod. I think the episode was called, and it's one of our best, it's one of our best performing episodes, A Layman's Guide to Decapitation. Oh, God, yeah, with the eternal decapitation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with the boxing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, what 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 counts as decapitation? I know I know in the sort of extended law or whatever, um, there's somebody who explodes and that takes their head off and they're done. But the, yeah, that that so they they don't just explode by themselves; that so they are in an explosion. Oh, okay, right. Um, I thought they might have won and just been so overwhelmed by what was happening <laughs> to them that they inadvertently no, it's, like in, it's in the war or something. Like. Okay, is that in one of the? Is that in like a comic or something, or is that? It's it's like the backstory for one of the like lesser immortals. So it's it's really really sort of five levels deep of canon. Right. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's one of the fun things about this film is that everyone says, so what counts as a decapitation then? If you were to do this, what would happen then? Um, mm. And it could have been that um, if he had shot him in the face uh, and taken out his eyes or something, then that would have made it much easier for Connor to win the sword fight because I don't think his eyes would grow back. Mm. So, yeah. Well, his neck doesn't heal. Essentially, to be fair, I think it kind of does because it, it's not permanently open and bleeding, so it has sealed over at least. But it's definitely still scarred. That's right. Yeah. So, so obviously not in not total regeneration. But um, but we do know that Kirk in a later scene we we do find out that he's a marine. Um, and yes, I think he just goes for where you mm. taught to shoot, which is just the body mass, just put someone down. So that was the training. That was the training coming through there. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Centre mass, yeah. Which, to be fair, from his perspective, until it went wrong, it did work. He put him down. Like, had the Kurgan been a mortal person, he wouldn't have got up again. And there's a nice bit of acting from Christopher Malcolm here. When he when the Kurgan takes Castigar's head, there's a nice kind of shot where you see that he realises he's found the headhunter. Yeah. And it's like, it's not... Maybe like a lesser film would have just had him say that in dialogue but he just realizes and he can tell from his face that, and then just immediately takes him down so actually like yeah as vigilantes go he is pretty effective just happened to pick on the wrong one yeah that's very true <laughs> and say so, i think yeah it's interesting that kirk ends up being for this scene at least uh one of our pov characters because obviously you know our primary pov character is is connor and then we've also got brenda and we've got uh, a bit a bit with the Kurgan and a bit with the cops. But this guy's a POV character really only for one scene. Yeah. And yeah, and I like the I like the kind of because you know, narratively certain people go, oh formally that doesn't quite work and but I think you end up with a really interesting texture to the story because here is this guy, he's a Vietnam vet. He's uh you know, he's uh, a little paranoid, but he's yeah, pretty much a good guy, to to paraphrase uh, what Bedso says about him in the later scene. And hmm. it's it, and the fact that the film has just gone, yeah, let's let's look at this different perspective on it. What would you do? It's nineteen eighties crime ridden New York, and you're driving around in your Trans Am, and you come across two guys having a sword fight in an alleyway. What would you do? And uh, he's a very broad character. I mean, you know, there's not a lot of subtle shading to him. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I I, I like you know the Highlander is a film that for better or worse, and I'm going to say you know on the whole, massively for better, takes big swings. And I'm, I'm guessing I need I need to go back through and take another look at the um, original Greg Wyden script. But I'm guessing this was potentially a um, a Bellwood, and um, yeah, uh, this was essentially a, possibly probably a later edition. Well, the, the character of the vigilante as a whole. Or? Yes, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, well, it is interesting to introduce a brand new character um, an hour and eighteen minutes almost into the movie, and then mm. have quite a key scene because it's like the Kurgan moving closer to uh, to the final showdown um to have that shot through the or seen through the eyes of this brand new character and i think yeah yeah to your point rob he's broad because we just have we just have to pick it up really really quickly what he's doing um which is why there's that good shot opening shot of the gun in the car which russell mulcahy says was a reverse shot it was because he puts the gun down but the shot was actually shot with him lifting the gun up so clearly it could be that that scene was not meant to open with the gun, just supposed to be him driving down in the car. But thought, no, we need to then get, we need the audience to know that something else is happening here. So they just had the shot of him resting the gun down on the car seat. That raises the question of why was he holding the gun? 
while driving. Has he just done a drive-by? <laughs> Have we just picked up with Kirk after he's done a drive Has he done a murder? <laughs> I think it's much like we ascertained in the previous episode that the Kurgan likes to hold on to his sword during sex. Kirk likes to hold on to his gun when he's driving. Okay. Only explanation. I'm, I'm willing I'm willing to I'm willing to accept that. And also the fact that he survives this scene has an additional scene with the cops who again we've talked about they're not going to pay off that narrative. <laughs> and we, he doesn't give us any new information in the scene with the cops other than, you know, a nice character beat for an incidental character who's a POV character in just this scene. <laughs> I've got something around that. Um that I'd like to get to, but just before we do that, Scott, you said that um there's something in the novelization about this particular scene or or this character. You mentioned it in the previous episode. Could you tell us something about that? Um, so the, the note I had was about the the events after this scene um, where the Kurgan goes to a bar um, and he's having a drink and there's a news report on the TV about Castigir's uh, death. And the bar, I think it's the bartender or the newscaster, I can't remember which, says something like, oh, they haven't found the head yet. Um and the Kurgan goes, it's over there in that in that puddle. You can't really see it because the lights, <laughs> the lights not on it, right? Um, <laughs> and the bar, the bartender really tries to sort of go, oh well, maybe he's just guessing, or you know. <laughs> um, and then then the Kurgan really goes like, no, I I basically resemble the sketch. <laughs> like, look at my hair, look at my like clothes. Like, he's just really not letting him have any peace of mind about this. He's really. Imp- implying oh and is that why in which case is that why he gets the haircut and makes the slight cosmetic difference before the scene in the church because he's essentially just outed himself to a randomer in a bar it could well be yeah i mean it would make sense yeah it's i mean it's also the um yeah because the police sketch is going around i think that's only in the novelization yeah either. i think within the film is because there's now like an artist impression sketch of him out there so as he says i'm in disguise nice to see Disguise. But um, <laughs> that's a great, that's a great scene though, because uh, you can just imagine Clancy Brown just doing that and toying with the with the barman, and yeah, no, yeah, it would have been good to see that. What if they ever shot it? If that was just in um, an early draft of the script, or was just yeah unique to the novelization? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think. Uh, by the way, can we address um, so Castier's outfit? Um, he's wearing like the exact same stuff, isn't he? That he's on. As when he was on the bridge with Connor, yeah. So presumably he's basically just they've gone to that party and then immediately afterwards um, they've had that fight. So yeah, is that is this the same evening? Yeah, that's what I'm kind of thinking. Oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, because there is the question like, why is Castigate in this alleyway? Mm. Um, and also. Does that mean is he half cut? <laughs> why why do any of them walk anywhere? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But is, is is he half in the bag at this point? Is he, you know, having to fight the Kurgan while under the influence? Could well be. <laughs> boom boom. Big strong man like you shouldn't be afraid of a little boom boom. <laughs> well I was thinking also because Bedso, obviously in the in the cutscene, um, he part ends up parting with both of them. Would he not then make the link later with uh, oh I recognise that guy. He was in the bar with the other guy who's suspected of a beheading. That's true. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm beginning to see why they started cutting some of this stuff out because it's like, Anna said, this is just, is not hanging together because why isn't he asking questions about that? <laughs> yeah. That makes perfect sense. That is a great point. Um, yeah, in terms of the timeline, I actually have to admit, I never thought about this in terms of how long after the party and the boom boom is it. But um, you're thinking it's like, 
at most the next day or something, right? I mean, I don't think that they hang around when they know there's like another immortal in the area. Yeah. Well, we've also just seen the Kurgan leaving the hotel. So presumably the Kurgan's gone straight to the Roach Motel to this location. So how did he know where Castigir was? Does he just kind of wander around New York until he felt the quickening? There's a version of the script in which he's tracking them. Ah. Yes, because, that, yeah, that's the thing, that you don't really understand how they just, you know, he just keeps on turning up. Mm. And yet, you know, and yet it took him five years to find Connor in the Scottish Highlands. <laughs> well, he was he was younger then. Um, God, does it say how he was tracking them? Um, I don't think it does. I, I, in the script, he just has like an envelope with photographs of them and they're like current aliases. Oh, right. Oh, that's interesting. He's, he's probably just hired out a private eye or something like that. Yeah. Because one of the things about the film, as is, is that at the beginning of the film, when we first see the Kurgan, he's making deals with other clans and he's using them to find the immortals. And you get the impression that he is using the mortals as like a puppet to uh, just to help him kill other immortals. Remember our agreement, Murdoch. The boy is mine. In the modern day scenes, he is just a lone operator. And he seems to have put all that to one side. So it is, I always wonder why. So it is interesting that, that there was a version of the script where he was continuing to do that and that he was hiring people out and things like that to, um, you know, like a private eye to to track the people that he had to get onto next. I'd say that's really interesting. Yeah, because it would be fascinating to have that, as you say, carry through as a thread. I mean, I still want my... Um you know, talking about feeling the connection, the oneness of all beings and the stag. I still want my rat army. <laughs> that would have been great, yeah. I mean, yes, for the Kurgan to call up an army of rats that he can just send out. Um, mm. I think in the film as is, it kind of suggests that they just know there's someone in the area because at the beginning of the wrestling match with Connor, he's, he's there because he knows that there's going to be an immortal hanging around somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, they just kind of got the vague... I mean, maybe that's how I kind of made fun in the episode where we talk about them, Connor and Castigar meeting on the bridge, that, you know, you'll be drawn to a faraway land. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean they've got, like, you know, pinpoint accuracy on, yes, I'm going to meet him on this... We'll just know to meet on this bridge. But maybe there is that. Maybe there is... They will find themselves drawn to very specific places. Yeah. And that they'll just have a vibe on who they're going to meet there, and, and or maybe they, you know, in the case of Connor and uh, Castigar, they met on that bridge before. Um, so yeah, maybe there is a slightly more of a homing aspect to it, even within the locality of New York. Um, because also, when um, we're jumping ahead now, um, when Kurgan calls Connor to say he's got Brenda, he doesn't say to go to Silver Cup, does he? Mm. So maybe it's like you know where I am but I want the home advantage. No, no, he, no, he doesn't. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yes, Scott, what do you think of the of the homing instinct theory? Um, it's, it's hard to separate it from the TV series where you definitely have a kind of, they, they call it a buzz, where they're like in the same area, like there's a, there's a certain radius at which you just know there's someone else around. Mm. Um, Yet, uh, in the scene, going back to the scene where... Um, Kurgan finds Ramirez. Ramirez apparently doesn't pick up on him till he's right outside the door. That happens in the series as well. There's literally a couple of... There's at least one instance I can think of where um, Duncan gets the buzz and then his opponent sort of looms into shot behind him. Like He's obviously walked <laughs> quite quite far into this like park or whatever without being picked up on. <laughs> I guess maybe, yeah. I mean, obviously it's for dramatic convenience. Yeah. But also I guess maybe in the case of Ramirez in the uh, having the drink with Heather and Castigear here, maybe it's the fact that, um, yeah, they've had a bit to drink or they're distracted or <laughs> they're, they're not picking up on it for whatever reason. Distraction definitely, I think, plays into it because uh, Connor later on, um, when they're at the zoo, 
that Kurgan's following him and he doesn't notice until Brenda's gone. Oh, yeah. Um, and did they say anything in the series? Because I have to admit, I've never watched an episode of the series. Mm. Um, mm. But I will before we finish all this. Uh, in the series, is, is there anything about how you can suppress the buzz or um, or suppress yourself to being detected by the buzz or something? No, I think that I think it's only sort of fan speculation, really. I don't think it's ever really gone into. Um, I think the logic is that the more powerful you are, the more you can sort of um, control it and sort of like, as you say, like suppress it. So maybe that's maybe that's what the Kurgan's doing. Yeah, maybe <laughs> it, would, it would explain how like Connor knows where in the initial fight they have in the present day uh, in that sort of warehouse complex thing. Um, he sort of he does know that Kurgan's there, but he doesn't quite can't quite pinpoint him until he's like right mm. next to him. Yeah, indeed, that's right. Um, and as a quick aside, so the series, which I think ran for six mm-hmm. years, so it was a successful series. Um, is it worth a look in your in your humble opinion? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it really sort of picks up, or like, so you go to the pilot, and then maybe because it's all very immortal of the week, it doesn't really matter to an extent which order you do them in. Um, so there's a couple of like episodes that are well worth your time. Um, and then I think it sort of starts to get consistently good around series three or so. Uh, I, I can put up a, a couple of rec- episode recommendations in the chat. That's great. I mean, I mean it's, you have to watch the pilot if just for Connor. Yeah, yeah. He's that's the only time he's in it until Endgame. Okay, right. Um, I think I'm just going to have a Highlander afternoon and watch all the films I've not seen yet. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it was because I was very much aware of them as they were coming out. And it has to be said, the well, obviously Highlander 2 was the one that I saw and uh, that hurt. Oh, no, there we go. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, he set, he set off. He set off the alarm. <laughs> Sorry, I did. I did. <laughs> it's just so reckless. Um, I thought it would be me. And then... <laughs> we well, can say it just to annoy Rob because I have to put in the sound effects again. Just say it. <laughs> um. <laughs> if you say it too much, I'm putting the sound effect over you talking. <laughs> like that's what you might be making the most inspired, uh, erudite point, you know, and the siren will be playing over it. So that's the risk you take. Yeah. The thing is, I actually, I've just looked at my notes. I had a note relating to Highlander 2, the previous episode, which I forgot to pick up on. Um, it was when we were talking about the pearl earring as a trophy. Um, in in Highlander two, of course, um, he there's a tailor who could just instantly assess the value of a pearl earring and just decide that it's worth the cost of a suit. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> in one of the sort of I don't want to say weirder scenes of that film because it's a weird film, but it's it's really out of place. Oh, all the stuff with Connery is out of yeah. place in that film. It's like it's it's a fascinating film, but it is a total disaster. Oh, absolutely. I watched it again earlier this year. <laughs> it's like. I mean, there are some amazing shots in it. I mean, the shot when Connor and Ramirez first come together and he comes out of the shadows and says, greetings, Highlander, or something like that. It's like, well, that's just mm. great. But um, but yeah, when the films were coming out during the 90s, it was always like, well, Highlander 3 was like everyone was saying, oh, this one is is a good one because it's not Highlander 2. It's much better. But uh, but then it was like, oh, actually, it's not that good. Mm. And then, yes, and then by the end of the run it they were just being like dismissed in film magazines as like another rubbish highlander film so i never really felt the urge to watch it but yes i'll have to for this of course yeah i, th- I think it i wouldn't go any further really than um i mean you can watch the anime um if you haven't already but i don't think that- we have discussed the anime yeah we've we've discussed the anime on the pod but i haven't watched it though <laughs> i was gonna say don't don't watch the source if you haven't already like avoid that one entirely you don't need to watch it oh well okay like it's it's it, i think it's been dismissed as a bad dream by the production team like like <laughs> this is this is just a bad dream that happened to duncan like don't don't worry about it yeah <laughs> 
Well, there's a really good point that's made in that book that Rob was was referring to about how this is a franchise that never had a hit film. Mm. The films never made back their budget in the initial theatrical run. They often came in far under the budget. Yet it's it still had a life, and it's and it still just ha- just kept having new films or series being made. I think the series was very very successful, um, and that's what made the producers their real money. Yeah. Um, but the but yes, it was like yeah, there was never a hit film in this franchise, but there were loads and loads of films. <laughs> so that's a. Uh, just another part of the magic that is that is Highlander. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, there's one thing I want to say about the scene. What I really like about this scene is that this is this is proper eighties action cinema. This and there's some just some really interesting points in terms of the Uzi. So the Uzi was the eighties action cinema gun, um, and it also ties into there was like a trend at the time for vigilante cinema, which was really revived because Death Wish 2 was made in 82, I think. Um, So quite a long time after the original, which I think was 74. And Death Wish 2 was revived by the Cannon Group, who, by the time Highlander got to be released in this country, had bought out Thorn EMI, so they released Highlander. But because it wasn't one of their films, they just kind of put it out and they weren't particularly interested in it. Um, And of course, this whole scene just continues that 80s trend of the slightly deranged Vietnam vet who's working through his issues, which was yeah, most obvious in Rambo, but then also in Missing in Action. But um but yeah, any any other thoughts around that, Scott? Well, I mean I don't really have any observations about that specifically. Um I do have a couple of notes that we haven't got to, if that's oh, go on. um so I guess that there's an instance where Kirk is going through the alley, um he's driving up and as the sort of sword clangs are sort of spaced quite far apart um so like as he's driving up it's, it's kind of mixed into the score almost like punctuation what the hell but it just mixes in with the score quite nicely that sort of punctuates the music that's going on which is why actually i think that my overall impression is that the fight's a bit slow is because of that mm. oh, interesting. That's no, she noticed that. I feel like I watched it again. And the, the other note is um, I can't watch it. When Castigate gets beheaded, um, my main sort of overriding thing is that it reminds me of the scene from Bill and Ted where Genghis Khan goes nuts in a shopping centre and, and and volleys the head off. <laughs> <laughs> of a mannequin, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point. I was, um, yeah, just to go into how this also ties into 80s cinema, that is a very 80s effect when that head comes off. It's mm. clearly a dummy. Well, it's, also, it's also the only head, the quickening we only see in motion. Like every other quickening is um, they sort of stop for a minute and sort of it's a good, clean, like Fazil has time to see the sword coming at him. <laughs> Ramirez is sort of praying as it goes through. Tonight you sleep in hell. There can be only one! Castagir is just yeah. stopped. Killed yeah. mid-combat, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a real shock to it. I mean, it is it is quick, and you kind of think that in uh, the remake, whenever it arrives, that will be a much bigger scene. Mm. Um, but yeah, there is a real shock when it just abruptly ends mid-combat by him just yeah, getting his head lopped off with that quite good twirl from the Kurgan. <laughs> 
Um, well, another thing actually, um, I suppose, about the Vietnam vet thing is that this all goes back to Taxi Driver, and there is an element of Kirk when he's driving around in his car and is you know, passing by all the sex workers and it's in the seedy parts of the city and stuff. I like, yeah, it kind of links back to Taxi Driver. Yeah. Um, Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off the streets. But yeah, it's a, it's really, it's a fun scene. It's really interesting. There's a huge amount going on, including a new character. Just as we get to the end of Act Two, really. <laughs> so. Hmm. An interestingly structured film. Yes, I think. Yes, I think you could write a thesis about how Highlander is structured or not structured, depending on. <laughs> what, will, what would the film be like if you watched it in chronological order? Oh, because presumably it would start with. It would still start with the Highlands, which would be a perfectly good place to start it. Um, and it would still end where it ends. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's, it's like it's almost because of the flashbacks were written into the script essentially. Um, but I think it would still work almost if you edited it to chronological order. That's a really good point. I can't believe there hasn't been a fan edit of that that's done that. Because mm. um, it would be interesting to see, because of course one of the great things about the film are all transitions that are so well done and so well integrated yes. into telling the story. How would it look if you just edited it into chronological so all those transitions were just going to another modern day scene? <laughs> well, if, if I edited it or if somebody competent edited it, those are different things. <laughs> well, it's... Um... Yeah, I think I think the fades, the fades would be very difficult. To... Yeah, but yeah, just to take the film as is, don't do any of the tinkering with it, just do those cuts and see mm. how that works. Oh, if we are talking about transitions, by the way, <laughs> they do that in the TV series as well. Oh, do they? Yeah, that's, that's one that's... All. I don't want to say selling points, but it's, it's quite a strong point of the series is that they do artfully transition back and forth between time periods. Right, is there any particular favourite that you can remember? Not offhand, no, but again, I'll, I'll come up with a couple and put them in the chat or something. Oh, brilliant, cool. And yeah, because that was clearly like a production element that um, that uh, Davis and Panzer wanted to carry over from the uh, from the film. Yeah, which is... Oh, I think I think there was one, um, a transition between two spy glasses. Um, so it goes from the, the lens of it in the present day to a different character looking into it in the past. Wow, that's a nice one. I, I might be misremembering that, but it's definitely... At least one of them definitely involves a spyglass. Hmm. Yeah, cool. Um, now I'm just thinking about how that wrestling match would play without all the intercuts of the warriors in the past. Um. <laughs> Probably surprisingly well, because it is kind of just intercut anyway. It's it's just a series of like quick sort of shots of wrestlers and... Like, yeah, I think I think in terms of that, you could keep you could leave those moments in yeah. because at that point you've already seen those sequences, so it's just a it's like a nice little grace note as opposed to a full blown flashback. Yeah, but if you were to take them out and just put them, <laughs> and you're right, it's like yeah, where would you put them if you didn't do that? But um, because in the cut as is, obviously watching these warriors in the ring is reminding him of his past. If you take it out, you think, wow, he's really into this wrestling match. He is quite a wrestling fan. <laughs> How intensely he's watching it. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, it's going to have to see if there was a Highlander fan cut that puts it all in, in chronological, or we just do it ourselves. Um, oh, interesting. It never actually occurred to me to do that. Um, is there anything else to say about the scene? Um, I think that, it, coming back to the point about the combat, um how it's uh, how it's handled um Plessy brown's definitely doing all the work he's really mm. sort of like he's twirling the sword around he's sort of going from side to side and stuff like that um well Castig is definitely on the defensive yeah but there's a lot of um eye contact between them as well so there's, there's definitely a case of like now i go here you go here you know i'm coming this way be ready that kind of thing oh. so there's, def there's definitely some choreography going on but it feels like they've had to learn it very quickly oh interesting i feel like i can watch it for that point, I'd noticed that. Um, 
Yeah, I think this was one of those that was obviously there was time that was put in to do the choreography, but I think a lot of it was um, learnt pretty quickly. I think also that Nancy Brown, and I might be misremembering this, but I think he was also suggesting things on the day and things like that. So it was, um, so yeah, I think they were probably. Which you'd think is the last thing you want to do as the learning choreography is you would need to presumably nail it quite far in advance. Yeah. So that's that's quite dangerous, isn't it? Adding in new elements. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I would definitely need to nail it quite far in advance, it's like, no, I, I can't go off, off script for this one because um, <laughs> I don't want to get hurt yeah. or hurt anyone else. <laughs> That's why I don't want to do um, the sword experience thing um, with uh, Adrian Paul because I know that I would not be good at like the sort of remembering and following the instructions like the first time he'd said it and all that sort of stuff. Like, I, I don't want my, I don't want Adrian Paul yelling at me because I'm not getting the moves right. Yeah. <laughs> He's decapitated Adrian Paul. I didn't mean, I didn't mean to. It just sort of happened. Um, I think I was supposed to go down instead of up. You think? <laughs> to be fair, it's more like um, he's killed some rube he's been paired with for the for this. Yeah. It would be, I think if I was to do that, um, because presumably now they shoot it so you have like a souvenir of the day or something. Yeah, Adrian Paul's head. <laughs> yeah, right. and you can't have uh, the footage as a souvenir because that's now needed in the court case but um but the we'll just me be going one two three and just saying it out loud um and they kind of like tend to build it up and it's like it's one two three and then it's four five six and and you have to nail it in in groups of three to uh mm. yeah <laughs> he just kept saying we'll get it in post and it's like well that's not how this works it's, yeah. a sword, it's a sword fight you can't get it in post yeah sorry when does it cut to my stunt level <laughs> he's just not getting this at all is he <laughs> but uh, has he ever toured that because presumably that's in the states that he does that yeah he's um i think he's toured it in the states and also i think he's done um locations in like england and ireland and stuff like that quite recently i Bad, I think. I'm sorry to say though, um, I'm not interested unless it's uh, Christopher Lambert leading that cast. He's <laughs> facing the wrong way. <laughs> okay, you follow me. I think I'm just going to put my sword down. Um, <laughs> Rob, the next time he comes over, we have to do it. Yeah, of course we do. <laughs> and and get it shot and uh, yes, put it up as a look at this. It's like it's like they've never actually held anything before, let alone a sword. <laughs> cool. Um, so any more for any more? I think that's it for me. Uh, I think that's covered all my notes. Well, the only other thing I've got to say is that Christopher Malcolm was the original Brad Majors in the first staging of, of the Rocky Horror Show. So the, so the stage show. Oh, wow. Hey, Janet. I've got something to say. I really love the skillful way. You beat me And he then, I think, yes, from 1989 to 2004, he was artistic director for the Rocky Horror Company. So he's the one that oversaw the licensing and the production rights for all the stage productions around the world. So yeah, that was, that seemed to be... I I would like to just, when you said Brad Majors, I forgot who that was, and I thought you were talking about Lee Majors. (laughs) Those are quite different people. But they're similar types, right? I mean, you can imagine them being in a film together. Um, I suppose, yeah. 
I mean, he was also in the movie for Shock Treatment. Yes, he was. That's right. Yeah, which was the uh, was the sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show. It was a sequel. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show made in I think oh, it's wrong, uh, nineteen eighty one or something like that, called Shock Treatment. Christ. Um, Arrow put it out on Blu-ray in the UK. It stars Richard O'Brien, Patricia Quinn, and maybe Little Nell's in it as well. Um, Tim Curry's not in it. None of the other people from the first one are in it. But it. Oh, Kelsey the Breeze. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's got it's got Charles Gray in it. Oh, Charles. Oh, okay, right. Um, but it continues the adventures of Brad and Janet. Interestingly, Janet is played by Jessica Harper from Suspiria and Phantom of the Paradise. So she takes over from Susan Sarandon. And it's a real curious egg. And the songs are not as good. But it's it's an interesting movie. It really is. Uh, it's one of those to watch, I think, with a mate or something like that. So you can just talk about it as you're watching it because it's very weird. They go to a town that's like a TV town. The whole thing is a bit like the Truman Show, I seem, I seem to remember. Um... So it has some nice ideas in it, but it's, yeah, it was not as successful as the first film, obviously, and is kind of forgotten. But yeah, so on that Rocky Horror note, <laughs> when talking about Highlander, um, well, if there's no more for no more, then Scott, thanks very much for coming on for another episode. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. Um, and if people want to track you down on the internet, where can they do that? Um, yes, yeah, so best place to get me is on Twitter, at Highlander Stuff, uh, one word. And I also, my personal Twitter is uh, Scott underscore V underscore writer. Um, that one's uh, much for, as I've said before, but that one's much more of a sort of retweeting what I find funny, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, those are the best places to get me. I don't really have anything else, like an Instagram or anything like that. Cool. Okay, thank you. And Mr. Wallace. Uh, yeah, if you want to find me online, you can do so on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing at Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Uh, Mr. Daniel and I also host uh, another film podcast uh, called The Movie Robcast, which tends to be more latest releases, the occasional retrospective, um, and you can listen to that wherever you're listening to this. Uh, you can also follow that on Twitter at Movie Robcast. Brilliant, thank you very much. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel and my writing at filmstories.co.uk, lovehorror.co.uk, electric-shadows.com. But more importantly, you can follow this podcast at McLeod Time on Twitter. And if you want to rate and review us, then please do. It's always much appreciated and it helps us with all those algorithms and stuff to push us up and things like that. Um, it's a kind of magic. And if you want to drop us a Highlander-themed email, um, then please do so at whowantstopodforever at gmail.com. So, again... Scott, thanks for coming on. No worries. And Rob, always. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening. And the only thing left to say is... Another time, McLeod! Another time, McLeod! Perfect.